here in front of me, we got Jeremy, Jeremy Buchanan, hailing all the way from Greenville, South Carolina, where he grew up. That's right. Um, he lives in West Knoxville now with a wife and two children. Um, he went to the University of Alabama, better known as Uneducated College. Um, I do have all my teeth. Yes, you do have all your teeth. That's Pretty good. Nice. Alabama family with teeth, weird. <laughs> he studied business management and became a loan officer in 2006. So he has over 16 years of experience in the field of giving loans in various different ways. And the only reason that he's allowed to live in Knoxville is because his wife actually went to the University of Tennessee. So it protects him from bodily harm. That's right. Awesome. Welcome, Jeremy. How are you? Good. Good, good, good to be here. Yes, I'm really glad to be here too. And just a random shout out how I know Jeremy is he actually did one of my loans for a house and we were having a really a lot of trouble <laughs> getting my income to basically be confirmed or like passed through all these regulations. And we gave it to him and he did it in like two days and basically saved us getting the house that we currently live in. So he is really good at what he does. He's really good at helping you as the consumer get the house that you need. So we will definitely give you a link and maybe a phone number at the end of this for anyone who's looking at houses later on. So yeah. he's, he's awesome. So there's a shout out for Jeremy. So uh, today though, what we're going to be talking about is if you are a first time home buyer, or you have no idea how to get a loan and all these questions that people have when they're thinking about investing in real estate, we're going to be chatting about what you can be doing now while you're in college, high school to prepare yourself. So when you buy your first home, you don't run into a bunch of problems. You have to put it off for a few years, have to have cash sitting around when you really want to invest it in a home or something like that. This is all about helping you be more educated. So at the end of this podcast, we're really hoping that you will be a much more educated first time home buyer and know what to do and what terms mean. So you're not going in there blind. Does that sound about right, Jeremy? No, that sounds good. Awesome. Cool. As we always start out, we're all about young people here. Jeremy, we'd love to hear about your origin story, how you became a loan officer, why you became a loan officer. Uh, excuse me, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so uh, so growing up playing basketball, my high school coach was a mortgage loan officer full time. Okay. So just kind of hanging out, hanging out with him after practice weekends. All the guys would come over, you know, cook out, you know, whatever. I even spent some time with him at the office. And I, I just thought it was fascinating, kind of the, the paperwork and, you know, helping people get into homes. And, and here I am, 16 years later. He has since gotten out of the business, but I'm in it. There you go. Or still in it. Gotcha. So 2006, you know, whenever you got started, why'd you start then? Or I guess after college, or how did you figure out that you wanted to be a loan officer like during college? Or what steps did you take to reach that role? Yeah, I went to I went to work for his firm. Okay. Um, and, you know, then, then some mergers, things changed. Ultimately, I moved here. Um, that's it. Gotcha. That is actually a really important skill that young people need to learn is using your network from high school, right? So yeah, the right network. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like with your basketball court, you built a great relationship, graduated college, got right into the same field, and he hired you mm-hmm. um, right out of college. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so make sure you get to know your teachers. <laughs> right? Yeah. Build a relationship there. So yeah. that's good. Okay, cool. Well, we'll just jump right in. Like, tell us a little bit about being a loan officer and what you do for people. And what's the difference between, you know, going with a broker like yourself versus, you know, a big bank that maybe you've grown up with? Yeah. So, so I've worked at a bank, I've worked at a non-bank and I'm now a broker. I like the broker. In my opinion, it's the best of both worlds. You don't have the the middle management that you're going to have in big retail Mm -hmm. or big bank. And all those costs, salaries, health insurance expenditures, they all get baked into margin, Mm -hmm. which leads you to the rates or the spread in the rates. So I'm able to offer as a broker without the management team, I'm able to offer them much better pricing. Uh, um, Humda, HMDA, Humda just released a study that showed that uh, the average person that went to a broker saved $9,000 in cost in comparison to big bank or, or retail. That's just because you, you've got access to all these different things. You can sort of cut oh, out the middleman, I mean, basically. Hundreds of lenders, they do, I mean, all kind of different Gotcha. Okay. Th- things you probably wouldn't think that were out there that they are, and, and we can do them. Absolutely. So as you're getting, as you're growing up, you're getting older. You know, you're graduating college. You're, you're a young adult, young professional. One of the biggest things to find the right people to partner and work with for a long period of time. You want to find somebody like Jeremy, who's really well knowledge. You can save you money. You know, when you go to him. So that's an important thing right there. So that's one reason to use a broker, which I think is really smart. 
What do you think is the biggest mistake you see a young person make when they're buying their first house? Probably maximizing their budget. Mm-hmm. Especially if, let's take someone that maybe recently married, they have intentions of starting a family mm-hmm. down the road, but they've maxed out the budget on the house. Okay. If you're going to grow the family, you're going to have additional expenditures come up. Mm-hmm. So you probably shouldn't go to the max mm-hmm. when you're going to have other events that are going to need income to support those events. Okay. Can you explain like the maximum budget to just like layman's terms of like what that would look like? Can you give a scenario of what, what that looks like in real life? Yeah. So let's say, um, simple math, let's say someone earns 10,000 a month from a mortgage qualification perspective, you can go up to 50 and sometimes higher, but let's just say 50% debt income ratio. Okay. So your payment could be as high as 5,000 if you had no other debt. Right. So let's right. assume there's no other debt. But if something happens down the road, you have to finance a car, you know, you have a couple of children, then you got daycare, you have no disposable income left over mm-hmm. after, you know, you make 10 to bring home seven. If five's going toward the mortgage, now a thousand's going toward the car. Another thousand today, you know, you're out of disposable income. That's the biggest mistake I see. And you're saying 10 after taxes? Or you're saying 10 and then you have your taxes? And then taxes and then you bring home seven. In in that analogy. Taxes suck. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so basically, what's your opinion on buying, financing a car? Is that ever good? Why would that ever make any sense? Um, I think it depends on rate. I do like paying cash, but if if you're at 0% or 0.9, I mean, hold on to your cash and I don't see an issue with that. Mm -hmm. Just like reinvesting the cash somewhere else would get you a better return than obviously spending it all in the car is what you're saying. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So biggest mistake, maximizing your budget, not leaving room for error. What are the couple mistakes that you see people do, you know, when they're trying to get their first home? In in the last few years? Mm -hmm. um, I think the other issue is waiving. You probably don't see this much now, but in in the last two years, you're writing an offer, you're going over ask price, you're waiving all your contingencies. You have no safety net. Mm-hmm. You know, if something happens to the house, and I've seen it, this happened to my neighbors. If, if something happens to the house, you have to redo all the duct work or whatever, the insurance not going to pay for it. And neither will the home warranty. So let's just think at a margin. Gotcha. What, what does a home home insurance or home warranty normally cover? Again, this is if you've never owned a home before and trying to understand where you're yeah, protected, so, where you're not. So a home warranty, if, so if you get into the house and let's say the dishwasher breaks or the HVAC goes out, <clears throat> the home warranty would cover the cost, would cover to, to replace that. Okay. If you waive your, if you waive your inspection, mm-hmm. so no contingencies, the home warranty wants to see the contract and then they don't cover it. What's the biggest mistake that you see a first-time home buyer, you know, do, and, and how should they avoid that? I see a lot of first-time home buyers overextending themselves on the house they're buying. Mm-hmm. So okay. maybe they want to start a family; they don't have one yet. If you overextend on the home purchase, then you don't have enough discretionary income left over to do the other things that you also, you know, family, vacation, future automobiles, etc. That's the biggest mistake I see in the last two years, specifically, probably inspection waivers. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, I want it. I want it. I don't care what it appraises for. I don't care what's wrong with it. Just just waive it and let's go. So an inspection, just in case you don't know what inspection is and you're listening to this, an inspection is oh. where you have a professional come in and they take a look at your house and they look for any like methane, gases, radon gas, all these different gases, water. all these different like water damage, mold, and they can give you a really good idea if there's any issues with that house. And you'll, they'll give you a really good report. And if there's any issues, you can basically negotiate with the seller, right? So you can basically get them to fix it or give you money or make the house cheaper for you. So you really want to do an inspection because it's going to set you up a lot better financially for buying that house. And it, and it may scare you away. You know, if you get an inspection, you might find that there's like been mold in there that's going to cost $10,000 to fix. You're like, man, you know what? I don't really want to do that. But if you'll do it, I'll still buy the house. And then they'll be like, okay, we'll fix it. And then you, you buy the house and then it's fixed by the time you get there, for example. Because if you think about it, are they really ever going to 
sell that house if they don't fix it. No. Well, no, right? So then you can negotiate, right? So it's really important to negotiate buying your first home. A lot of this stuff's important about like thinking about your money. So if you're thinking about your money, you make $10,000 a month, as Jeremy was telling me before here, you know, you're going to have 7,000 left over after taxes. Don't spend 5,000 a month on your mortgage. Buy a house that is below your means. That's nice. That's clean. That doesn't have issues, but you want to invest in something that's going to grow and appreciate over time. So the biggest things to look for is really where's the location at, right? Are you in a really terrible place next to the projects, right? Maybe that housing value is not going to go up a lot. Or are you in like a nicer area where there's developments, there's new parks being put in. Those are the type of things you want to think about, you know, when you're buying that first house. Um, so that way you're going to be creating value over time. Because Jeremy, like how do you, if, if you're talking to a first time home buyer, buyer, excuse me, you know, how do you explain appreciation to them or like the building of wealth in, in a simple way? Yeah. Um, and, and I try to discount the last two years because that's unprecedented. But yes, if you buy a $400,000 house today, typical appreciation is four, five, 6% a year over time, over a longer period of time than the last two years. The last two years, I think sales price year over year, the median sales price in Knoxville is up 31%. And that's just year over year. I know folks whose home prices have doubled, new neighborhoods, et cetera. If you were the first one in, in a subdivision, in the last two years, you probably doubled your equity or doubled in value. That's how the wealth builds. You have an appreciating asset. That's not like an $80,000 Denali that's worth 75 when you drive it off. Mm-hmm. So like, what are the factors that make appreciation happen? You know, is it just market? Is it loan rates? Is it just, you know, so there's a shortage or how, how does that kind of work? I think rates are the carrot mm-hmm. and they have been up until the last few months. But no, just um, future sales. And I know we saw it in 08. That was unprecedented. But it is very rare for a home to decrease in value. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would take a global depression. Mm-hmm. And we've seen one. But they're also up since that point. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. they, they rebound. So like, why does a global depression change the home value in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, even if it's nowhere near it? I didn't see too much depreciation in 08, 09. Uh, you saw more of that in, in the higher home priced areas like California, New York, Arizona. Knoxville has always been kind of sound. Now, mm-hmm. some could argue that the prices of the last 24 months, maybe we're getting in that higher, but we're still nowhere close to Nashville. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I do not foresee values decreasing. They're stabilizing. You're not putting a house on the market for four and getting five cash, all waivers, all inspection waivers. You're doing due diligence in this market. You're mm-hmm. getting the home, you know. So no, I, I don't think you're going to see depreciation. Sure. What's the difference between a buyer's market and a seller's market? And why should a home buyer pay attention to that? In a buyer's market, you are going to be more prone to get a little help with closing costs. That's something the seller could pay. In a seller's market, if you look at the last two years since you know COVID, we've had a lot of folks move into Knoxville. It's a seller's market. So they can say, I want, they can list it over, over value. They can not want appraisal contingencies or inspection contingencies. And, but you're not getting that in this market because it's a, it's a buyer's market. Right. So why, why does the buyer have the power now? Well, rates are um, more than 4% higher. Okay. So activity slows. So when sales start declining and you don't see the madness that we've seen the last 24 months, it, the pendulum changes. And okay. It, so it's a, I mean, values are still good, but it's more of a buyer's market now than it was, than it has been since COVID. Absolutely. And, if, and when you're talking about rates, just again, just for a listener who maybe has never heard of a mortgage rate before, and mm-hmm. um, what happens is when those go up or down, it incentivizes people to borrow or not borrow, right? So if you have a yeah. higher interest rate, you don't want to borrow as much because you're paying more back over the years. If it's a lower interest rate, you're more likely to buy. And so those mm-hmm. rates have gone up to battle inflation, you know, to make inflation lower. 
you're just explaining it to a, someone who's never heard of it before. How do you describe like mortgage rates and inflation and how, do, how are those related? So I'll, I'll give you one quick stat. Last year, you could have financed 800,000. And if you compare that to today, you could borrow about 475 to get the same same principal and interest payment. Mm-hmm. So that, that's $325,000 in difference. Okay. Buying power that you lost from 299 on a 30 year fix to 699 today or seven. Everybody's going to be different. But the average fixed rate right now is 7.038. Oh, wow. Okay. Gotcha. So the buying power, you said 200, how much thousand? The difference? Yeah, yeah. 325. 325,000. So That's basically, it's basically another house, another to, house to get. Okay, gotcha. Because the interest rate. Describe refinancing because one of the things that my wife and I are going to do is refinance when the rates come down. You know, you buy mm-hmm. once people drop their price, even though the interest rate is kind of high, that can be scary. But what is refinancing and why, why is that a good thing? So I, I tell folks, you marry your house and you date your rate. So that's a good, good thing you brought that up. So if rates drop to five or, you know, four, whatever, and you're at seven, well, that's 3%. So on $200,000 loan balance, that's uh, if you drop 2%, that's four grand a year. 2%, 200,000, yeah, that's four grand. Right, right. So that's, um, so you can save monthly. You can reduce your term and cut out. So maybe you keep the same payment because you're comfortable with the payment, but you go from a 30 to a 20. Now you've cut 10 years off. If your payment's, you know, two grand a month, that's uh, what, 240,000 you're saving? Mm-hmm. That math may be incorrect. Yeah, sure. But that, the whole idea though is when you refinance. You're reducing your term. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're basically you're lowering less. your overall costs because yeah. the rates change. And mm-hmm. when you lock in your loan, like if you bought a house at 2%, you can stay there the rest of your life if you'd like. But if you went in at seven, you always come down to a three or a two. And sometimes it's actually better to invest in that because for example, if there's 8% inflation and you have $100,000, well, your buying power is now 92 cents mm-hmm. you know, for every dollar next year. But if at least you invest it in a house, although your you know interest rate might be kind of high, that at least the house might appreciate, right? And oh, then yeah. you can reinvest or you could refinance, excuse me, you know, your loan rate to be lower. So that way that money's just not sitting around, for example, if you did have a lot of money lying around. Is that correct? Correct. Absolutely. So refinancing is a really cool skill. So Jeremy, you know, what's the difference between a retail, wholesale, bank, and direct mortgage? Describe this for us. I don't even know what those are, and I've bought two houses now. <laughs> yeah, so um, when you go to a bank, you're dealing with that bank, their guidelines. Of course, we all, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, which governs FHA, VA, they make the rules. Okay. They say this is what you get. These are government organizations, if you didn't know that. Well, except for Fannie Freddie, but they're under government conser- conservatorship. Right. So they made the rules. But there's also some buyback. And there's, so there's a lot of things behind the scenes. So a bank may say, all right, we know that VA will take a 500 credit score, mm-hmm. but we don't want to. We don't want to deal with the risk because of penalties, etc. If it were to go into foreclosure, so they may say, "Well, your minimum, my our minimum credit score is 620 or 640 or 660." But anyway, so you're still dealing with that bank. You you don't have another option. It's what the rules that they make. If you go to a uh, what they call a correspondent lender, mm-hmm. so you're you're dealing with that lender, but they may have three or four investors. With me on the broker side, I've got 200 lenders that I could send the loan to. Mm-hmm. So wh- whoever's cheaper, better, faster. That, that's who we send the loans to. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So you have more options. There's more flexibility. It allows for lower credit scores. You're going to find more ways to yes with a broker than you will bank or correspondent. Yeah, because they're just trying to give you a, a mortgage within their own Correct. Your purview, whereas you Particularly could- Particularly with lower credit score. Gotcha. Okay. So if you have a lower credit score, a broker can get you a better deal and better 100%. rates. And Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. If you're a first-time home buyer, you know, some banks, they have some, some things they have to do for community reinvestment acts. So they may be able to tailor something different than I could like on a first time home buyer, 100%. Mm-hmm. But I'm open about these conversations. So if, if I'm not your best fit, I'll tell you. Yeah. No, I'll tell you where to go. 
what would be your advice be in finding someone who would be a great loan officer, someone you can entrust long-term? Same thing maybe for a realtor if it's your first time buying a home. Yeah, I would say find someone you can trust. I think the likability thing is, is a little overrated. Mm-hmm. It's like, I would rather find someone that's honest with me mm-hmm. before I got to the point of whether I liked them or not. Because you can like someone that turns out to be a liar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, just find someone that's honest, that communicates, that's answering your questions. If you're lost in space after three weeks, th- there's probably a problem. Um, and, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Ask all the questions you want. And if they don't answer, go find someone else. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that figuring out if someone's dishonest or not is like, you're asking the question, they don't answer it like pretty quickly, pretty honestly. Yeah. You know, sometimes they'd be like, hey, I don't think this is a good, you know, good thing for you. And I think one of the things also too is just look for, are they just trying to get you to say yes or are they trying to get you a deal, right? If someone's trying to get you a deal, you know, that's somebody who you can trust because they're, they're making less money. So obviously right. people make money in this business, realtor or loan officer. If you buy a house, if you don't buy a house, they don't make any money. But they're like, hey, you know, get a smaller one. Like, I don't think you ought to go that high, right? That's yeah. a that's a good thing because um, yeah. they're just looking yeah. out for your interests instead of whatever their own are. So that's a great yeah, way don't, to don't, do that. Don't find a, a yes man or ma'am. Yes. Oh, like, sure. Of course you can do that. And you're giving up sure. almost half your income, sure. you know, every single month to buy a house that you really yeah. can't afford, right? So. So how does someone get pre-approved and what's you know, prequel and pre-qualifying and, and what, what is all that and why do you need to do that in order to go look at uh, houses? So the difference in a pre-qual and a pre-approval, a pre-qual, you're, you're just telling the information. So you're telling me how much you make, how much you have in the bank. Are you telling me your credit score uh, based on a very disconnected credit karma you know, score? Those scoring models are different than what they use in mortgage. But anyway, that's a pre-qual. A pre-approval is I'm going to hand you my W-2s, my pay stub, my bank statement, you know, my driver's license, you know, so on. And we're, and we're going to have an underwriter look at the loan and approve it in in that regard. Gotcha. Okay. What's the best way to prove your income? And have you ever seen a horror story where someone just couldn't prove their income no matter what? They're making all these mistakes or, you know, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, you see that sometimes with um, anyone 1099 or, or self-employed because they have the opportunity. So they may tell you, I make 200 grand a year, but then you, you uncover they have $250,000 in expenses. Well, that's not making 200 a year. <laughs> it's losing 50 a year, whether it's literally losing 50 or just for tax purposes. But either way, that's how you determine the income. It's taxable income. And I have options for either one. So you don't have to make any money if you have down payment. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. What is like a horror story? Like you've worked with someone and they just like as a first time home buyer and it was just a nightmare and they, you couldn't get this stuff. Like what should a first time home buyer do in order to ensure the success of getting the houses that they're looking at? One that sticks out is they, they were emotionally invested going in. Mm-hmm. So before any inspection, they were in love with this thing. So there's water damage galore in the basement. So guess who orders the inspector? The realtor trying to sell the house. <laughs> So it's his guy. It's, it's her guy. His yeah. or her guy. And of course, they, they produce the document that, that he or she wants to see, which is no, no issues here. It's normal. And I had to, uh, I, I just decided for me, I just kind of walked away from that transaction because A, they were over leveraging and then no one's, you know, no re- repercussions for the water. To, you know, so I suspect that that will ultimately go south. So I, I walked away. I didn't feel comfortable. It's my NMLS number on them. And I, I didn't feel like he was making a sound decision. I feel like it was all emotional charge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, probably gonna lose a lot on that deal. <laughs> no fun. Please listen. Listen to your advisors. You should listen to your people a lot of times. You know, especially once you've got a relationship with them. You know, just listen to what they're saying. That you know, a lot of times they got their, they're doing what they're doing. They're successful at it for a reason. So. If you have to get some advice to a first-time home buyer for a real estate strategy, you know, what, how should they go about developing a real estate portfolio? What's the difference between an investment property and a personal residence? Yeah, so when you buy a personal residence, you're really only agreeing to live there for a year. So some of the most successful real estate investors I know will do that. So they'll buy a house, live in it for a year, save. Now, they're not driving $80,000 cars. They're driving Honda Civics. So they save for another down payment. They convert their current home to a rental. 
Now it's cash flowing, they buy another one. 12 months later, they do it again and again. 10 years later, they've got nine houses, four of which are almost paid off. They're all cash flowing, still driving the Civic, and got a lot of money in the bank. You can certainly do that. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference, though, between a personal residence loan versus investment loan? It's another layer of risk. So investment, obviously, you're not going to live there. Mm-hmm. So if, if you have 10 mortgages, one of which you live in, nine of which you don't, if financial distress happens, which nine are you walking away from first? The ones you don't live in. That's why you're going to see higher down payment, higher rates. But obviously, there's still a great return on the rental income. And then what you do with that spread, it's up to you. I mean, you could pay down the principal. You can invest it. Right, yeah. And the idea of real estate investment, if you don't know much about real estate investment, the whole point is that when you're buying these houses, they're hopefully appreciating over time. So you're building up equity. So you're building wealth that way. But also if you rent them out on Airbnb, you know, some properties can make you $80,000 cash flow a year and you pay out the mortgage and you just pocket the rest of it. You know, and you can be, when you have 10 properties, easily profiting 10 to 20,000 per property per year, especially if they're in really good places, depending Mm -hmm. on size, of course, and making 120 to $240,000 a year. And so the idea of that is to really save your time, multiply your time. So that way you can do work, whatever you want, because you have money coming in. You don't have to be a slave to whatever job you end up working, you know, where like, oh my gosh, if I don't do this job, you know, then I can't pay my bills. And what you want to do is do whatever you need to, to basically get to a point where you're doing what you love, Mm -hmm. whether that's something that makes you money yet or not. At least you have all that, that those properties that you could sell or that you're making money from every single month. So it's just covering you, covering your assets. That's a game. And it takes time. It (laughs) it doesn't happen in a year. Yeah, it takes time. But you know, again, if if you're very diligent, 10 years, getting one or two properties a year, I mean, you can be really set up, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty well. But again, that takes a lot of work. You have to really work your, your face off to make the first money because getting started is the hardest part. Yeah. Although most people don't realize if you had twenty to $40,000, you can get started with a house. Oh yeah. What is the number one piece of advice that you've either learned throughout your life or that you put into practice, something that's working for you that would be super beneficial for a first time home buyer or someone who's just trying to build wealth or get into the real estate market for the very first time? Um, leverage. So if I'm paying 15, I want to try to charge my tenant maybe two grand or whatever, but it's leverage. Maybe buy a duplex. You're living in one side, have the other half rented out. Leverage. Like right now, maybe invest in a three-month treasury. They're paying 4%. That will compensate for the seven you're paying on the mortgage or six, you know, whatever. So I always try to leverage. Like how, what could I do? How could I invest short-term, long-term to where I'm I'm leveraging and not coming out of my pocket, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you leverage it? Like, how do you get a treasury bond at 4%? How do you know where to even find that? That that just happened. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's just recent on the market. You couldn't have done that three months ago. Okay. Or even certainly not last year, but there's always an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's T-bonds right now, maybe it was Airbnb last year. Maybe it was renting out other part of the, rent out a room. If you're, this is you in in a three bedroom house, rent some rooms out. If you're close to downtown, uh, when UT has a game, rent it out for a weekend, punch some corporate. There's all kinds of ways to leverage. Mm -hmm. So basically leverage being you're utilizing what you own your house to make money to pay for that. And then of course it's appreciating over time, right? Mm -hmm. Things like that. So you're basically avoiding the cash flow. You're basically living somewhere and having someone else pay for your mortgage in order to live there. So essentially living for free, which is your goal, right? So just leverage what you have to live for free and lower your expenses. so You can do more things that you want and not be putting so much pressure on yourself, for example. Yeah. And some of that may take time, especially if you're trying to invest in TV, you know, but starting out, if, if I was coming in single, no kids, I'd buy a duplex all day, maybe even fourplex all, the, all day. Yeah. Rent it out. Just rent out the rest and live in one. For a year. Boom. Also called house hacking. So I'll do a podcast on that and a YouTube video as well on house hacking, how to get started. Uh, what my brother and I did to basically pay no mortgage over two years in our first house that we bought um, and what we were doing going forward with different investments and things like that. So Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I know everyone that's listening has definitely learned a lot. I've learned a lot today. So we appreciate you a lot. It's my first podcast. Yes. You did great. 
great. You got a good podcast voice. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll get crushed on the YouTube. Yes, yeah, maybe, right? <laughs> Nonsense, don't worry about I'm it. I'm coming for you, Joe. That's right, you're coming for this job. So um, you can learn more about Jeremy and get connected with him on LinkedIn. That link will be in the description, you know, going forward. You know, all of our social media, you know, handles and profiles will be in the description as well. If you're listening to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Um, appreciate you guys. We're over 150 subscribers at this point, so that's really good news. You know, hopefully we'll get 200, 300, and I'll just keep updating you guys as we go. But, you know, I guess want to say appreciate all of you guys for listening and hopefully this is really informative and educational and hope you enjoyed and I hope that this will help you not be young, dumb, and broke and instead be better off in your life in all those different ways. So appreciate you guys.